Good morning. It is nice to see all of you today. Um, I hope your day is going well. We've got a couple announcements before we jump into our lesson today. Uh, the relief effort for the Bahamas will continue. Uh, there are some items there, and you can see it in the bulletin, uh, that you can continue to donate. We've already taken a couple van loads of supplies down to um, the Gould Church of Christ, and from there they are being combined with larger shipments. Uh, uh, they are making it to the Bahamas, and they are being distributed. We've gotten regular reports, uh, and so uh, we also want to thank you for your generosity in last week's special contribution. Over $13,000 was raised, and you can continue to um, make efforts and, uh, and donate to that. Um, you can do it via check. Uh, if it's cash, you have to give it to someone so that we know to set it aside for that purpose. You can do it online. Uh, and you can indicate that it's for uh, the special contribution. So thank you, and we'll continue to pray for um, our friends and neighbors and brothers and sisters uh, in, in the Bahamas. Next Saturday, there will be a walk-run, depending, I guess, on your physical state, um, and, uh, and it's to benefit St. Jude's uh, Children's Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, when we worked in Memphis, we had a number of families that we were working with whose children were being treated at St. Jude's. It's an amazing facility. We've toured the facility a couple different times, and they are really doing really significant work. Uh, if you would like to sign up to be a walker or a runner, or if you would like to donate, uh, the young professionals in the college group are kind of coordinating this. You can go online and, uh, and find all the information you need, but that will be next Saturday. And then on next Sunday uh, in the afternoon, there will be, um, the, the I think it happens about four times a year, the airy-wide singing this year. Uh, this time it's going to be hosted at the Homestead Church of Christ. And so uh, if you're able to attend 2 p.m., uh, you'll... Um, are, are welcome to, to be a part of that. Something else happening next to, uh, next Sunday, uh, David Capiro is going to be giving the lesson, so you'll want to uh, um, uh, make it a point to be here. Not that you wouldn't when I'm speaking, but I mean, you know. <clears throat> um, now, it, you might remember that David was scheduled earlier in the summer, and, and he got sick. So uh, what we'll want to do is to pray for David and make sure that uh, the, the, the Lord grants him health so that he can uh, deliver the sermon that he's working on. But we'll also want to pray for Robert just in case. Uh, <laughs> and so, Robert, I would go ahead and get that sermon ready and stick it in your pocket um, uh, because Robert filled in uh, for David uh, last time and, uh, and did a fine job. So um, keep that in mind as well. Jesus has been through the trial before the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. Throughout this process, once he got out of the garden, he has been a model of calm determination. He is the picture of courage under pressure. Uh, he is a rock in terms of the way he is dealing with this adversity, this abuse, this, these horrific charges and treatment that he's receiving. While he's been in this upper room being grilled and then being mistreated by the Jewish leaders, 
outside the courtyard below, Peter is facing his own trial. He will have the opportunity to live up to the name that Jesus gave him. Peter. Petros. Rock. But what we'll see is that three times he's given the opportunity to stand up for Jesus and three times he denies him. This text will be the last one before Jesus will be crucified next week. And this is all part of what would be a Good Friday or a Holy Friday, as they say in Spanish, uh, a message. It's not one that our world really likes. We like to jump ahead to Easter. We want to go from Palm Sunday where the crowd is receiving Jesus and we want to jump right to Easter where they are celebrating his resurrection. The Gospels don't permit us to do that. The Gospels force us to slow down, to observe, to feel, to witness things that are so horrific that we don't want to witness them. We want to close our eyes. We want to cover our ears. We don't want to see. And yet, it's so important that we see. Because we really can't understand Jesus and appreciate his sacrifice if we don't observe. As the early apostles did. Observe what he went through. So we're going to walk through this text beginning in chapter 14, verse 66, through chapter 15, verse 20. This is from the New English Translation. And the text reads, Now, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the high priest's slave girls came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked directly at him and said, You also were with that Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it. I don't even understand what you're talking about. And then he removed himself and went to the gateway and the rooster crowed. When the slave girl saw him again, she said to the bystanders, Hey, this man is one of them. But he denied it again. A short time later, the bystanders again said to Peter, you must be one of them because you are also a Galilean. Perhaps his clothing, very likely his accent would have set him apart. And the text says, and then he began to curse And he swore an oath, or swore with an oath. I do not know this man you are talking about. Peter doesn't have the boldness or the audacity to mention Jesus' name. This third time that he denies Jesus, the text says that he said 
or called down a curse. Now, he might have said something like, may God burn me alive if I am lying. May I drop down dead. Those would be kinds of curses. He might have called down a curse on himself. The NIV takes that particular approach. The text leaves it ambiguous because there's another much darker possibility. He might have called down a curse on Jesus. By the end of the first century, Christians were often subjected to this kind of test. If you will not curse Jesus, you will die. Curse Jesus and live. Polycarp was a church leader at the end of the first century. And when he was about to be executed, the Roman ruler said, curse God, curse Jesus, and I will release you. And Polycarp replied, 86 years I have served him. And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme the king who has saved me? He was burned at the stake. And then he was stabbed through. And then even after he was dead, his body was continued to to, to be abused and mistreated. So we don't know what Peter said. He either called down a curse on himself or he might have cursed Jesus himself. Regardless, after this third denial, immediately a rooster crowed the second time. And Peter remembered what Jesus had said to him. Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This will be the last time we see Peter until uh, again, once again, he will appear after the resurrection. Not in person, but his name will appear on Jesus' lips. As Jesus is making his post-resurrection appearances, he says, go find Peter. Jesus knew how devastated he was. And Jesus wanted to bring him back. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. In chapter 15, early in the morning, after forming a plan, this would have been Friday morning. The chief priests with the elders and the experts in the law and the whole Sanhedrin tied Jesus up, led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Pilate was the governor, as it were, the the individual that was ruling uh, Judea at this time. He was a Roman official. He wasn't the best of rulers. He wasn't the worst of rulers. Reports indicate that he was a pretty finicky kind of uh, individual that tended to be more on the cruel side. And yet um, there are some indications that he had a little bit of decency in himself. But he's turned over. Now Jesus is turned over to Pilate. And what's striking is that Mark Uh, creates this narrative where Jesus goes through the same things before the Sanhedrin and goes through them again with Pilate. In each of these trials, he is interrogated, he is condemned, and he is mocked. 
And I think what Mark wants us to see is that there was not one individual, there wasn't one group that condemned Jesus to death. It was both the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, and the Gentile rulers. He is first rejected by Jerusalem and then by Rome, first by the Jews and then by the Gentiles. Because in the years following and even up to most recent times, the Jewish people have been treated as if they were fully and wholly and totally responsible for Jesus' death, which is not accurate according to Scripture. And Mark wants us to see that both groups, Jews and Gentiles, had responsibility for condemning Jesus to his death. Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, you say so. And then the chief priest began to accuse him repeatedly. So Pilate asked him again, have you nothing to say? See how many charges they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no further reply so that Pilate was amazed. Brings to mind those texts in Isaiah that... uh, that before my accusers, I will remain silent as a sheep before he is slaughtered. During the feast, feast of Passover, it was customary to release one prisoner to the people, whomever they requested. A man named Barabbas was imprisoned with rebels who had committed murder during an insurrection. Now, this is a perspective that is obviously told from uh, the view of someone who was not a Jew. A Jewish individual might have considered Barabbas as a right-wing extremist fighting to deliver the Jewish people from the pollution of Roman rule. For Jews, he might have been viewed as a hero, a freedom fighter. In fact, He, with this description, more fits the idea that the Jewish people had in their minds for what a Messiah would look like. Someone who is willing to take it to the Romans. Someone who is willing to sacrifice their life by taking out as many Romans as he could in the process. But Barabbas would have been a good candidate for execution. And yet, the one who deserved to be executed is going to be set free. Something else interesting about Barabbas. uh, In Aramaic, um, B-A-R, bar, means son. In Hebrew, it's ben, B-E-N. But in Aramaic, bar means son. So this is bar, son of Abba. Does that sound familiar? So Barabbas is actually, his name means son of Abba, father. And that brings to mind that this is the very description of Jesus himself as the son of his father, Abba. And so this son of the father was imprisoned And so the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to release a prisoner for them, as was his custom. So Pilate asked them, do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? Most commentators think that Pilate 
mistakenly assumed that they would say, yes, let Jesus go. But he was mistaken. Pilate knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas instead. So Pilate spoke to the crowd again. Then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. They screamed back, crucify him. Pilate asked them again, why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted more insistently, crucify him. Pilate was, by his own (laughs) uh, actions, uh, in a bit of a quandary, because if he released Jesus, he ran the risk of a riot among this mass of people that were gathered. During the Passover, uh, uh, the population uh, in Jerusalem could go as high as four million with all of the different individuals. Um, and so if he released Jesus and the chief priests, as they were already doing, stirred up the crowd, they could have led to a riot of grand proportion, which would have been one more complaint lodged against him, which might have threatened his career as a politician and his career would be over. But on the other hand, if he released Barabbas, I mean, he is the poster child of the people we shouldn't be releasing. He was an enemy of the Roman state. And yet that's who the people shouted and wanted. Because he wanted to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. Then after he had Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified Mark gives us no details, which is probably good. Uh, You can find plenty of details if you look at other ancient writings. This process of flogging was often a punishment in and of itself. It was also used prior to crucifixion to shorten the length of time a person would survive. History has indicated that numerous people died just because of the flogging. The the whip was a special collection of different strands of leather that had been threaded with pieces of bone and metal and bronzes, glass. It was called a scorpion. And there was no set number. It was just as many... Uh, lashes as they wanted to give. It often exposed organs and bone. It was so horrific that Suetonius claimed that even Domitian, this cruel emperor, was appalled by a crucifixion, by a flogging that he had witnessed. So Jesus has been turned over, and now the soldiers that are leading him will mock him. They led him to the palace, that is the governor's residence, and called together the whole cohort, soldiers, hundreds of soldiers. They put a purple cloak on him. Purple was the color of royalty, the most expensive uh, dye in the ancient world. And after braiding a crown of thorns, they put it on him. 
They began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. And then they knelt down and paid homage to him. When they'd finished mocking him, they stripped him the purple cloak and put his own clothes back on him. Jesus was wearing his clothes. They stripped off his clothes so they could beat him. They put the cloak on him. They took the cloak off. They put his clothes back on. And then they led him away to be crucified. Let let me suggest that this text impacts us in four different ways. Uh, First, it brings us face to face with our own sin. Ultimately, all sin is a denial of Jesus. A Christian is a, a Christian is someone who has said Jesus is enough for me. He is my everything. I don't need anyone or anything else. Jesus is all the world to me. But when we sin, we're saying Jesus is not enough. There's something else that I need, something else that I want, something more attractive, something more appealing than Jesus, and I want it. And so if we're serious about living this Christian life, we have to learn to call sin by its name. Failing to trust in the Lord, being envious of what others have, speaking behind someone's back, being selfish, failing to provide for and help those who are in need, all are considered sins. In God's eyes. You know, I've had a couple conversations with people over possessions and wealth and donations. And and how do you decide? Because on the one hand, it's like you're never going to give enough. And on the other hand, we've got to survive in this life. And if we give so much that we end up become destitute, what good does that do? So this is just me. I think one way is just think of percentages. You know, if that's the way that your mind works and your pocketbook works, think of, okay, I'm going to give X percentage, and then as able, I want to increase that. Let me suggest another way that might be a little more useful. Uh, Think about the things in your life that you would consider luxury items or the luxury things that you do, those moments when you splurge, those moments when you say, you know, I deserve a break. I'm just going to do X, whatever that might look like. Think about those times when you splurge on yourself, whether it's a vacation, whether it's a different kind of uh, 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 experience, it's something you purchase, whatever it is. And then compare how much you spend on splurging for yourself And then how much you give, either to church or to some charitable organization, to some sort of relief effort like the Bahamas. If you're willing to spend thousands of dollars on a cruise, but then you only give a minimal part of that to people in the Bahamas who are suffering, there might be some priorities that are out of place. I don't think God expects us not to enjoy our life But I think it's a question of enjoy it, but then be extremely generous with everything that you have. So sin is thinking only of myself and not thinking of others. 
So sin is not necessarily buying that pair of shoes, but maybe if you have a thousand pair of shoes, buying one more, that might be getting close. You know, we've I've thought I haven't thought about Imelda Marcos in a long time, but with this hurricane named Imelda, uh, her mind, her name and her person came up. Now, I do want to clarify because I've had this conversation as well. Books, especially theology books, that, that's not a luxury. Uh, uh, those, those are my bread and butter. And uh, um, in fact, if you don't like my sermons, buy me more books and maybe I'll get better. Uh, <laughs> Sin is missing what God's best is for us. And when we sin, we're denying Christ. When I'm selfish, I'm denying Christ. I don't have to deny him with my words. I can deny him by my lifestyle. Now, we know God's grace will cover all the sins of those who are trapped, those who have stepped over the line, but we won't ever appreciate God's grace until we grasp the horror of what our sin did to Jesus. This horror of this infectedness that has permeated every part of our being. So this text forces us to be real with how serious our sins are. The second thing it does is it forces us to confront our weakness. Uh, Mark, I think, is pointing out that, yeah, even the best of the best, like Peter, are going to falter. By the time he's writing this, Peter is a hero in the Christian church. It's possible he's already written some of the letters, First and Second Peter. It's possible that Peter was well known among these circles. We don't know exactly the relationship between the writing of Mark and then the death of Peter. But Mark wants us to know that even the best of the best can falter. The fickle crowd that welcomed Jesus now turns against him. We need to be honest about our weakness. I I think the third thing this text calls us to do is to realize that we're in a battle. As we mentioned a couple weeks ago, Peter's battle was lost in the garden. Jesus told him three times, stay awake and pray or else you'll fall into temptation. Peter didn't stay awake. He didn't pray and he did fall into temptation. The Jewish leaders lost the battle because they had already decided they had already made up their mind what they were going to do with Jesus early on in the Gospels. They had already decided they wanted him dead. Pilate lost the battle because he allowed his ego, his desire to be his ego to be massaged, uh, his need for acceptance. And he was swayed by the crowd. The crowd can have an amazing impact on all of us. On two separate occasions, there's probably many more, but at least on two separate occasions, um, once in a Sports Illustrated article in, in 2011 and then in an NPR uh, study in 2016, statisticians went at this whole idea of why does the home team win more times than they lose? What is this home field advantage? 
And so they started breaking down the numbers, and it's not that – and they were looking at all different kind of sports from Japanese baseball, Brazilian soccer, the NFL. And it's not because the pitchers are throwing better. It's not because the quarterback has more uh, uh, accuracy when he's at home. It's not because the players are better. Both of these studies – the one was done by Michael Lopez in 2016, a researcher and statistician at Skidmore College in New York. He analyzed five years of NFL games, 1,400 penalty calls. And the one factor that both of these studies identify for why the home field wins, the home team wins, is the refs. Because when the crowd starts yelling... And the crowd gets in the ref's face. And all of the players and the coaches are constantly berating the refs on the sideline. They tend to, over time, side with the home team. Over and over and over. Often unconsciously, they respond to the pressure from the crowd. Now, it doesn't seem to work with the Dolphins, but that's a whole different... Now, that's a different tragedy. <laughs> Pilate caved. He gave in. He allowed the home team advantage to sway him against his better judgment. You know, in a battle, you battles are not fought the way... They used to be fought where everybody kneels down and it's an orderly fashion and on your mark, it's set, go and let's start shooting. No, there's sneak attacks and there's this. Satan doesn't wait for you to be ready before he attacks. He doesn't give you a heads up. Hey, by the way, I'm going to see, I'm going to see you tomorrow morning at nine, so be on your best behavior. No. He'll attack when we're our weakest, when we've had a hard day, when we're already tired, when we've had numerous situations on top of another. He'll whisper to you, do you know what would make you feel better? Well, you deserve it. This text forces us to get real with our sin, with our weakness. It's a reminder that we're in a battle of good versus evil, forces of evil versus God. And yet this text also offers us hope. While Peter is so dismally failing in his test, Jesus is victorious. Peter lost the battle in Gethsemane, but Jesus won the war. And this is our hope. Our record of sin and failure is put up against Jesus' record of holiness and obedience Every outbreak of anger, lying, hatred, sexual immorality, impatience, selfishness is matched by his love, his integrity, and who he is. And at the cross, those records are exchanged. I get his perfection and he gets my junk. And perhaps the clearest example of this is Barabbas. Barabbas is the one that should be carrying that cross. 
Barabbas is the one that should have been flogged. Barabbas is the one that should have been crucified for his sins. But he's in his cell. A soldier comes. He's ready for the worst. He's ready to shout some sort of uh, 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 anti-government statement before he's executed. He's willing to throw it all on the line. And the guard starts leading him to the front gate. Rather than leading him to the site of crucifixion, he leads him outside and says, get out of here, you're free. And that's exactly what the cross does for us. The cross substitutes an innocent victim for a guilty criminal. And the guilty criminal walks free. Because you and me are Barabbas. We're the ones that deserved the punishment. But Jesus took our place. The offenders, the criminals, the guilty ones released from our cell. We've been taken out to the light and set free. Like Barabbas, we deserve our sentence. Like Barabbas, we don't really contribute anything to our freedom except our sin. And so let me invite you today to leave your memories of your fallenness, your failures, your sins. Leave them with Jesus. You might need to weep. You might need to break down. But once you've realized what Jesus has done, then rise up. Rise from whatever guilt, whatever shame, whatever horror that you're feeling and ask, what can I do with this life that God has given me? Jesus has spoken truth every step of the way. Every time he prophesied something, it came true. He also speaks truth when he says, I lay my life down for you. I will die so that you may live. And that happens in our baptism. It happens when we come together. It happens in our life at all moments. We are Barabbas. Set free. And given the opportunity to live. So my brothers and sisters, let's not squander the life that God has given us. He died to set us free, not to make us live in darkness. Let us rejoice with the goodness and the mercy that he has granted us today. And let's go and make this world a little bit more like the place that God has always wanted it to be. We would love to pray with you and for you. Uh, Cheryl will be here, one of our elders, to receive you. If there's any prayer requests, any specific needs, anything on your heart that you would like to share, please make your way to the front while we stand and sing. Thank you. Jesus.